Hey there, I'm Justin Zyduck. I'm Jim Cannon, and you're listening to The Iron Age of Comics, a critical reevaluation of comic books from about 1985. To 2000. So in the Iron Age, everyone at DC got a new origin to fit in with the new post-crisis status quo. A single appearance and showcase updating the look and name of the hero was no longer enough. Everyone needed a brand new ongoing title, and the best way to kick that off was with a miniseries explaining the all-new, all-different background. This week, it's Green Lantern's turn. So we're taking a closer look at the 1989 miniseries that redefined Hal Jordan and the core for decades, Emerald Dawn. So let's start by talking about our own experiences with the work in question. What history do you have with Emerald Dawn, Justin? Well, it goes all the way back to when you said, we should do Emerald Dawn on the podcast. (laughs) And I said, sounds good, and bought the cheapest used copy that I could find on Amazon. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it was it was it was quite cheap, believe me. Um, so yeah, I'd never read it before. Um, never really been big into Green Lantern in general, not for any real reason. Just you know, only so many hours in the day to read comics. But by the time that I was seriously getting into DC beyond just you know single issues here and there, uh, Kyle Rayner was the new Green Lantern, which is obviously a whole discussion for another time but um Mm -hmm. yeah this is the first thing that we've covered so far that i'm coming to totally fresh so i'm uh, looking forward to talking about it cool so (laughs) for me like 1989 1990 was about the time i was transitioning from full-time marvel zombie to dc uh Mummy, I guess, or <laughs> whatever the phrase is for a DC fanatic. More of a DC fan in any case. So this was facilitated by the explosion of trade paperbacks coming out of DC, in particular at the time, riding the wave of Watchmen and Dark Knight Returns in particular, but the general Batmania at the time following the Burton film. So I started my exploration of DC through the Batman trades, but quickly branched out to other characters. One of the first I tried out was Green Lantern, a character I knew almost nothing about at the time. My only real exposure was via the Super Friends cartoon. So Emerald Dawn was one of the first Green Lantern books I purchased. I paid $4.95 for the trade, collecting all six issues of the original miniseries. It is strange to think that I now pay more than that for a single comic. <laughs> Uh, although this trade uh, is was on newsprint, um, and the coloring these days is far superior, and and everything, and so you're, I mean, you're getting more bang for your buck, I guess. Uh, but anyway, this was the only Hal Jordan I really knew for the longest time. Um, I just will say that the trade paperback that I bought was the one with the newsprint, the four ninety five one. And um, I'm one of those weirdos who likes newsprint, so I, <laughs> I, I really dug the presentation. I have, I have to say. I, I have some issues with the coloring, but otherwise it's, I don't have any real problems with, with the, the format. I think a cheap, affordable trade is, is actually something that they could probably do more of <laughs> these days. Um, the Man of Steel, you, you got your Batman Year One, you got your relaunch of Flash and Wonder Woman and so on. And they all 
came out more or less during Crisis or immediately thereafter. So 1989 rolls around, or maybe a year earlier, depending on the story shared by the creators. It was Green Lantern's turn to shine. A little pun there. <laughs> the first issue was written by Jim Owsley, better known today as Christopher Priest, who happens to be one of my favorite writers. Mm-hmm. There are conflicting reports for the genesis of the first issue and why Priest didn't continue past it. And both of them come from Priest's website, so it's hard to say exactly which one is the the true one, I guess. So in one, Priest spent 15 months writing and rewriting the first issue to satisfy editor Denny O'Neill, then quit over the stress of it and started driving a bus. He also says that a change in editorial forced him out. When Andy Helfer took over the editor duties, he was more interested in bringing Keith Giffen aboard. So Keith Giffen came aboard. Priest was out, and the remaining five issues were plotted by Giffen and scripted by a person we'll just skip over, uh, with Mark Doc Bright doing most of the art, although Giffen did breakdowns and layouts, I think. Yeah, I mean, the, the way that the credits are divvied out, starting with number two, it's Giffen-plot and this other individual-dialogue. I've read that the way that Giffen works, at least with uh, J.M. DiMatteis, he said this, is almost sort of a variation of the Marvel method where Giffen will like, essentially draw a thumbnail comic version that maybe has some notes and directions in the margins, or even just like draw the actual breakdowns like on the boards and the artist will pencil the actual pages and then the script goes back and, and adds in the dialogue. So a very sort of a unique style, I think, even, even today. But certainly you can see Giffen started as an artist and became a writer-artist and, and writer Mm-hmm. So that that's that makes sense. That that would be his his writing process. Actually, a, a lot of successful writers do that. Does Alan Moore? I think does thumbnails. I think Grant Morrison sketches stuff too. Yeah. So Giffen's in good company. <laughs> Although an interesting intellectual exercise is to imagine how the series might have gone if Priest had remained involved. A lot of what he sets up in the first issue is quickly swept aside to replace by whatever Giffen wanted to do instead. So you say interesting intellectual exercise. I say extremely distracting because I was constantly second guessing like every plot and character development as I was reading this wondering like, is this where Priest was planning to go or is this something different? Like it's not clear. And there's again, there's no background that we've really found that gets into this, like whether or not priest turned in like an issue one and they totally rewrote everything going forward or if they were working off any kind of plan that he had been working on so if anybody knows we'd like to we'd like to we would like to uh be informed but yeah i mean just structurally so much of what is set up in that first issue uh is largely abandoned and the real like villain doesn't show up until the second issue set third issue really yeah i think so it's hard to say but i would guess just based on how those six issues run together that giffen inherited a setup that in typical writer fashion when somebody takes over a a story in the middle which does happen occasionally just kind of did their own thing Mm. i think but yeah like you said there's no way to really know for sure because i did look (laughs) (laughs) and there are like no interviews or anything um that i could find 
um, about the evolution or, or drafting or uh, conceptualization of, of the storyline. Yeah. So, I, yeah, I'm also a uh, priest Owsley booster, so I do think it's a shame that he didn't get to, to see this out. Um, although if I do play Devil's Advocate here, Giffen is heavily involved elsewhere in the post-crisis DCU at this time, so he's doing the Bwahaha Justice League, he's doing Legion of Superheroes, I think, still. Um, he's doing an Aquaman miniseries, uh, fan-favorite stuff like Ambush Bug. So I, I understand why an editor might want to give it to Giffen as, like, this is clearly working elsewhere in our line. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a shame. Yeah. That's <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's kind of the, the theme I think that we will be referring to, uh, keep coming back to throughout this episode is, like, oh, that's a shame that... Yeah, no, that's that could have been so much better. Yeah, so given Green Lantern's popularity in within the the DC universe over the last few decades, primarily through the work of Jeff Johns and how quickly Emerald Dawn was swept under the rug and <laughs> and replaced by a brand new shiny origin in the post Infinite Crisis yeah. era, I think uh, we might want to do a, like a full summary mm. or more than we have been doing because I don't know how many of our listeners may have actually read this one. It doesn't have the cachet of, of Batman Year One or Wonder Woman Gods and Mortals and so I guess I'll just do a basic breakdown. Yeah, um, yeah. T- t- take it away. <laughs> so as a boy, Hal Jordan witnesses father, test pilot Martin Jordan, crash his plane into the tarmac and die in the explosion. Nonetheless, he grows up to be a pilot himself at the very same company, Ferris Aircraft, but he's such a screw-up that he's in danger of losing his job. One night, while out with his friend Andy, his brother Jack, and Jack's girlfriend Dee, Hal drinks too much beer, drowning his sorrows, and attempts to drive everyone home. He naturally crashes, putting his supposed best friend Andy in the hospital, paralyzing him. Inexplicably, Hal goes to work the next day, he is in danger of losing his job, and while running a test simulation, he is summoned to the side of a dying alien and given a magic ring and a sweet Gil Kane costume and a crash course in how the universe works, which he largely ignores. <laughs> good old Hal. Yeah, good, good old Hal. Hal tries out flying before thinking to check in with work and learns that Andy is paralyzed. Angry and frustrated, Hal attacks a sign that caused him to crash. Only the sign is yellow, and he gets flattened. After that, a giant yellow killer robot named Legion arrives in pursuit of a Green Lantern so it can learn the location of Oa. Hal defeats Legion, meets Tomar Ray, another Green Lantern, and visits Oa, where he gets a crash course in the use of his powers thanks to Kilowog. Legion shows up on Oa, having followed Hal. There's a big battle during which Legion totally kicks the crap out of the entire core, the day is only saved when Hal flies into the main power battery on Oa and gains enough power to defeat Legion once and for all. So I spent a great deal of time explaining what happens in the first issue <laughs> and quickly glossed over the other five issues because pretty much all the interesting stuff happens in the first issue. The rest is is not all that great. <laughs> so what did you think? Is this a good introduction to Green Lantern and the cosmic part of the DC universe? Uh, well, I, I agree with you there. Like the the first issue is is really good. You know, like I was I was really knocked back by it, and I don't think it's totally just you know, yay priest boo other guys on on my part. Um, so like the you know the 
the whole thing with the, the sign is that it's it's like this metaphor for some external factor that this guy is blaming for all of his problems, you know, because he's kept going like, it wasn't my fault that I drunkenly crashed my Jeep. It was, the, the you know, the sign was too close to the road, right? Mm-hmm. So, he, so he gets a Green Lantern ring, something that can, for all intents and purposes, like do anything, right? He's given a tool to literally exert control over, you know, his life and environment. Uh, but he still fixates on this external factor and thinks, you know, now that I have the most powerful weapon in the universe, I'm going to take care of this sign once and for all, only just to crash into it again because he doesn't know about the yellow weakness. So, like, <laughs> this is this is ter- like this that really knocked me out. That's terrific writing that plays with the whole Green Lantern like lore in a clever way to deliver this emotional wake up call. Like, it's it's a literal sign, you know, that that Hell Jordan keeps ignoring or running into because like the you know it's like the whole thing here is like the problem is inside Hal. Right. And even if you have the most powerful weapon in the universe, you still got to deal with Hal first. Right. So that's just a fantastic first issue. And I would, by the way, I'd like this entered as evidence that I'm not just making nostalgia based judgments on this podcast (laughs) that like, right. This isn't just all stuff like, oh, I love this when I was eight. So like now it's (laughs) it's, it's really good objectively. No, like, no, this is came to this for the first time. Read it was really blown away by it. Really cooks. Um, I've, I'm like the flip side because I enjoyed this in 1989 <laughs> and and reading it now, I'm like, oh, golly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, issues two through six are like, they're perfectly okay, right? It's a serviceable Green Lantern core adventure, uh, but all the daring stuff that really makes number, you know, issue number one sizzle is not there. Yeah. I, I think it works. It's fine. Mm-hmm. That's, I mean- it's fine. <laughs> there's nothing wrong with it, but there's also nothing exceptional about it. Like it lays out all the major pieces. You get the ring, the vulnerability, the recharge rate, the core, the guardians, the supporting characters. Reading it recently, it just doesn't really cohere into anything solid. And I, I don't know if that's the result of, of too many cooks or if it's just the difference between storytelling in 1989 <laughs> and storytelling in 2022. So this Hal Jordan is not the square-jawed, two-fisted test pilot from the 50s, but he's not the wishy-washy, middle-aged Hal of the Bronze Age either. Is this a character you would want to follow into a monthly title and see on a regular basis? Uh, can Priest write that, that monthly title? <laughs> No, it, no. no, I guess no. not. Um, <laughs> he can't. Yeah. He's driving a bus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a, you know, it's it's a character who's set up and he has a clear emotional growth arc with some potential and a backstory and not all of it gets explored here. So yeah, I guess, you know, like purely theoretically, yeah, like, yeah I see how there's room to develop this version. Um, and I think that if I had read this at the time, it might have seen, uh, seemed more daring, but like fresh in, you know, 2023, this is like, okay, yeah, I see what you're doing here. This is a pretty standard character arc. I mean, like a lot of Marvel movies start out with like an immature guy who needs to learn a lesson. Right. And like, that's sort of exactly what we're seeing here as well. So like, it's not, I'm not really complaining about that. I'm just like, Oh yeah. Like I, I recognize this, but I'm not, I'm not like knocked back. Like, are you saying that like a beloved silver age character could have these gaping flaws? I'm, I'm, I'm shocked. Right. It's, it's like, no, I, I get it. It's work. It works. 
So back then I, I, I did read the monthly book after this. So I was, I was hooked in, but here's the thing. I've never been a huge Hal Jordan fan, (laughs) which I know is, is probably some kind of heresy to (laughs) most Green Lantern fans. But my first exposure to Green Lantern was, like I said, through the Super Friends cartoon, he just kind of looked cool and had an awesome power set. He's got the magic ring. He's got the force fields. He make anything he can imagine as long as it's you know a baseball bat or a big fist <laughs> or whatever. Um, it's cool, yeah. uh, but Hal himself is is pretty bland. Like I said, he's just just this kind of square jawed, two fisted adventurer, and then after hard traveling heroes, he becomes this kind of clay footed hero type. Like he's he's yeah. just not. You know, so but Emerald Dawn tried to give him some character flaws, some nuance, but I think it swings too far into making him unlikable. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if I was if I was a big Hal Jordan fan already, or if I had been, like I could understand perceiving this as some sort of character assassination, right? Because like, I mean, I've I've heard that Dan DiDio called this book a sin, right? <laughs> and uh, Jeff Johns like retconned it out as you know pretty much as soon as a continuity reset came along to be able to do that so like i i I do get that like if i was invested in this character i might go like i don't i don't want to hate this guy or i don't want (laughs) to it's hard to like him yeah i don't want to think this guy is a total putz but he is i mean he's introduced as an irresponsible screw-up so like at the time Readers complained that dc was copying iron man and making green lantern an alcoholic but I don't think that's actually the case. He is a drunk driver, which I think is is perhaps more relatable and, and more likely to have happened in somebody's life. I, I just I don't think it was qu- it was the exact same thing as Demon in a Bottle. It was just a bad decision. Yeah, I think that's a you know that's complicated and. The line, sort of, right? The the line where that is is a comp. You know, it's it's sensitive, and different people could sort of read different things or interpret it differently. Um, and there are like a couple of other pointed references to Hal's drinking peppered throughout, and like, oh, you know, he's wakes up with a hangover, and he's you know reaching for that drink in the morning or whatever. So you know, I I, I don't know what was intended, but like my personal impression when I read this is that like it looks like Hal makes situationally bad choices, like. I'm going to drink a bunch and then get in this Jeep rather than like he is fighting an addiction of some sort. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do wish we knew more about what being a screw up entails. Cause like when we meet present day Hal, he's just gotten, well, you know, almost fired. Right. But we don't see what he's gotten in trouble for. Like, is he making mistakes? I don't know if he's, I don't know if he's like honestly trying and making unforced errors or if he's not giving it his all and he's just sort of like cruising through or if people have unrealistic expectations or if, you know, his boss just doesn't like him, right? Or, you know, or maybe he is showing up to work drunk or hungover or something and that would, that would answer that question, right? But like, we just don't really know, we don't know what's going on with this guy, right? Well, I think I think the dr- the drunk driving is meant to illustrate that he's just making irresponsible life choices in general, and the in the mm-hmm. state of his career, he's grounded. He's not allowed to fly planes, which is all he wants to do. But he's lost his relationship with with Carol Ferris, the daughter of the owner of Ferris Aircraft. So he's just in a 
and a bad he's had a, like a series of bad decisions and a, having a bad day and he's drinking to forget his problems and it just causes more problems <laughs> as as that sort of thing does yeah. as as a wise man once said you know alcohol the solution to and cause of all of life's <laughs> problems exactly um another symptom i think is Hal's like a narcissistic jerk <laughs> when he finds out about Annie's paralysis he naturally gets upset but he literally says why did all this happen to me <laughs> like his best friend is the one who's paralyzed but he's like why did this happen to me it's like how step stop <laughs> step back <laughs> think about it for a minute would you please so i guess becoming a green lantern and defeating legion and coming back to Earth to serve as jail time is meant to show how he matures through the series. But he defeats Legion by being an arrogant jerk <laughs> <laughs> and just taking more power than he knows what to do with. So the climax doesn't depend upon Hal's fearlessness or his honesty, which are the, the two requisites for becoming a Green Lantern, or even a test of will, which is what actually powers the Green Lantern constructs. So it doesn't actually show any real kind of growth. He just impulsively flies into the power battery and somehow it all works out. Right. It's all a little flat. Yeah. Again, this is why I wish that we knew how the priest version was supposed to go and whether it might have given a more like organic sense of maturation or a, a clearer emotional journey because... Um, Hal already turns himself in before he goes on his big Green Lantern adventure. Like he's in the holding cell. So it's not like being Green Lantern has helped him stop blaming everybody else from his problems and, you know, agree to take responsibility because like, he was already going to do that before Legion crashes the jail and lets him out. And that's why he, he goes out. But he was he was like all ready to face the music already, you know. And um, you also could have played it where like maybe he was tempted to stay in space because that way he can sort of escape all the problems that he was having on earth and live in space as the great, you know, save the day green lantern hero. But, <laughs> you know, but then he just sort of decides he's going to own up to it. There's like a step missing, you know, like I feel, yeah, <laughs> I feel like it's just one of those things where like I had, I had some problems. I had a big <laughs> adventure. I saved the day. And like, now I think I'm solved. And I'm not really sure <laughs> what was the, you know, what, what, what was exactly the step that involved in defeating a giant yellow robot slash mercury alien that made you decide to stop blaming everybody else for your problems. Yeah. So like, I mean, yeah. the point is that priest sets up somebody who needs to go, uh, undergo some kind of active character growth. But by issue six, he just saves the day by doing something that probably shouldn't have worked. And <laughs> Everything's okay. You know, he goes back and he serves his time. And then when he gets out, there's a job waiting for him again at Ferris Aircraft. And in another year, he gets to fly planes again. So really, everything just sort of works out for him, right? <laughs> it's, yeah. It's just everybody like loves Hal Jordan so much intrinsically <laughs> that we're all just going to, you know, I, you know, I look at it, look at, look at his expression. He's learned his, he's learned his lesson. So. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then like the, the, the final scene in the book is. He is flying a plane again, and the plane is going down, sort of like his father's did. And there's a moment where he might, he, you know, he sort of looks at his ring and is like, okay, we got to get out of this. But then he ditches the ring, you know, he makes it eject out of the plane, and then he brings in the plane for a landing himself and walks away from the crash. But, like, what's the implied growth there? I'm not, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not sure, you know, like, is it, was his problem that he was 
scared to fly and that was holding him back and like rejecting the ring is learning to trust in himself. But we, we didn't really see any of that. So like, there's a lot of, I can read all sorts of stuff into this if you want. Right. But yeah, I'm not sure what's supposed to be there. I don't know what the purpose of that scene is either. Other than, you know, it's like poetry. It rhymes. Like it opened with a plane crash. (laughs) So it has to close with a plane crash, but because Hal survives it or manages to salvage the plane while still, you know, landing it is he's, he's surpasses his father or something i don't you know i yeah i, I mean there's is this does does giffen have <laughs> have issues with his dad i or <laughs> you know i i don't want to read too much into it because that's obviously unfair to say but it doesn't really connect to anything that went before other than that first scene and it's yeah it doesn't elaborate any further on hal's character in any way well i mean it has like it has like the shape of having had some growth, right? Like you come away from it and you're like, if you're not paying close attention, if you're just sort of like glossing over it, you're like, oh, okay, yeah, I guess he, he learned his lesson, but what was, what was the lesson? What, what, yeah, what was the lesson? <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I just read the whole thing. <laughs> so uh, I guess ultimately I can't help but feel that literally any of the other Green Lanterns <laughs> of Earth are more interesting than hell. Even at the point when this story was published, and John Stewart and Guy Gardner were the only other humans on the core. And I think there's like a dozen <laughs> human lanterns now. Um, but those two were more compelling than Hal. Just by dint of being African American alone, never mind being an architect and the stereotypical comic book angry black man, Stewart had more going on as a character than Hal did. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, John doesn't need a lecture from Oliver Queen to make him more socially conscious, right? <laughs> and Guy Gardner is an arrogant, combative jerk, but he's presented as a sort of anti-hero, and that leads to comedy and different group dynamics and fun. But Hal is also an arrogant, combative jerk, <laughs> but that's portrayed as being in the right, which is less palatable and, and more difficult to accept. And yet... Like every time someone launches a new Green Lantern book, whether it's Andy Elfer in 1989 or Jeff Johns in 2008 or Grant Morrison in 2017, 2018, whenever they did that, that run, they pick Hal as the go-to guy. And I, I, I don't understand that. What's interesting about Hal, right? And <laughs> interesting is, is in, in quotation marks is that he sort of defines everybody else being more interesting than him. You know, like if you, if you, if you take him as like, like the default template for, you know, yeah. like you said, square jawed, you know, white guy. Right. And you have, well, what if he was more like this or like, what if instead of a test pilot, he was an architect and that forced him to work more, you know, uh, more cerebrally and more uh, detail oriented. Or what if you were Guy Gardner and he was, had even fewer positive traits than, than <laughs> Hal Jordan was. Or, you know, or when, when Kyle Rayner comes onto it, it's like, well, what if you had an artist and, you know, somebody who thinks creatively about how they use the powers? Hal Jordan is sort of like, he's sort of the benchmark for everybody else, but then that means that there's not a lot of center there, you know? It's pretty thin gruel. And even, even after this series, he has problems, right? And he has things that he needs to overcome, but I'm not sure, like, what he is like 
other than pouty about his own about his own problems, you know? The like I said before, the requirements for for becoming a Green Lantern are are honesty and, and fearlessness. Not empathy, <laughs> not intelligence, not Kyle Rayner's imagination, not even the willpower, which is, you know, how they actually do their job. The fearlessness and honesty are a volatile combination when you think about it. And Hal demonstrates how someone who doesn't fear the consequences of their actions <laughs> um, or always thinks they're right um, might not be be the best candidate to wield the most powerful weapon in the universe. <laughs> right. But even even there again, like Guy is an even better way to illustrate that same situation where Guy Gardner is an even bigger disaster than Hal, but he still technically fulfills the minimum requirements for like, well, if you're really headstrong and you're confident in yourself, you can be this and it doesn't matter if you're actually just a huge meathead, you know, <laughs> everybody <laughs> everybody hates yeah. and doesn't get along, you know. It's just another a long string of bad decisions by the guardians of the universe, <laughs> I think. <laughs> Speaking of, so the main villain is a being called Legion, who appears, I think, only in this series and never again. But Legion is a giant yellow cyborg who is naturally impervious to Green Lantern's attacks because he's, he's yellow. And he requires thinking outside the cubicle ring construct to defeat. So what did you think of Legion? Um, well, I apologize for making another MCU comparison. These dang movies are so <laughs> overpoweringly omnipresent in our culture that we have no other frame of reference for anything outside, <laughs> outside of Marvel movies. But he does kind of remind me of an MCU villain in the way that people are sometimes critical of MCU villains. Because like he is established as being a very credible physical threat, you know, so the stakes are high. He's not, he's not a ridiculous villain. He's a very serious danger, and he has sort of an understandable motivation. And we're told that you know that's that's good writing, right? You should have a motivation that makes sense, and nobody's the villain in their own story. So that's you know that's good on paper. He has sort of a personality in this series. He's sort of familiar and chatty. He's you know he's sort of talking to. Abin Sir's corpse and being like, oh, Abin, I didn't give you permission to die, right? Like that's, <laughs> so that, you know, he's, he's, he's personable. There's some, there's some color. There's some liveliness there. There's, it's quips. He's very quippy. Yeah. yeah. But even though it's worked out so that all the ingredients seem to be there, nothing really comes together or coheres to make him compelling, right? There's like a, a missing X factor that's, that's not there. Like, and he, and he has a clear goal, right? Cause he's, his goal is to destroy the, Green Lantern Corps and the Guardians of the Universe, but he doesn't really need to do anything clever or interesting to pursue that goal other than show up and just be a big yellow tank and, you know, smash his way through all the all the superheroes. So, yeah, I feel like in a Marvel movie, you would see a character like this and he would be played by some cool character actor and you'd be really excited when they announced it. And then you see him and be like, oh, that was kind of a shame. They, they just really had him in a, in a mocap suit all the time and didn't... <laughs> No, because like I mean, he yeah. is. That, this is exactly that sort of like you know um, Lee Pace. Like everybody likes Lee Pace when you right. see him in Guardians <laughs> of the Galaxy, and it's like, oh, that could have been. I could have played that role, right? I mean, yeah, just shout a lot. <laughs> maybe sh shave my beard. Well, I think it's telling that he never returned. Yeah, like yeah, everybody in comics returns, and even though he's hurt, he I mean, at the end of this story, he's sort of disposed of in a way that seems permanent, but you know, it's it's comics, right? Nobody is. Yeah, and a, de a decent writer could come up with a reason for him to come back and should have actually because the way he's set up 
like Hal destroys a Legion with a nuclear explosion, and then another one just shows up. Like his name is Legion. There's supposed to be more than one of them. Yeah. What? But like you said, his, there's there's nothing there's nothing all that interesting about the character. So he he never he never came back ever. Yeah. He just, I mean he's just kind of like a big yellow doomsday, right? Of like he exists only to be able to take out the hero, or in this case, a bunch of the heroes. But yeah, so that like Hal has to prove that he's the greatest Green Lantern ever by figuring out a way to defeat him. Um, that none of the other Green Lanterns could possibly do being, you know, aliens and, and whatnot. <laughs> it's not, not daring and brave and imaginative <laughs> humans like we are. It's like Flash Gordon, right? Where must be a hell of a planet you come from. <laughs> hey, let it, let, don't say things we can't take back. Flash Gordon is the greatest movie ever made ever. I will, I will never say anything bad about Flash Gordon. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, like, Green Lantern doesn't really have a lot of other respectable villains, does he? Like, as of, you know, I'm speaking as of 1989 when this comes out. Like I'm, Again, I'm not a deep Green Lantern guy, but the big ones are Sinestro and Star of Sapphire. And then you're on to guys like Black Hand and Evil Star. <laughs> you know, like, and, and I, know that, I know that Jeff Johns did something with Black Hand and that's... Well, I mean, there's, there's, there's Goldface. Um... <laughs> There's Hector Hammond. There's the shark. Right, There's um, the weapon years of Quard. Um, there's Sinestro and um, <laughs> Sinestro and Sinestro. and yeah, yeah. You're. I mean, it's just you know aliens of the week uh, very often rather than monsters of the week. And Legion kind of fits that bill, I suppose. But Green Lantern doesn't have the kind of deep bench that somebody like flash or batman or spider-man has definitely <laughs> and, I, and i and i realize again i realize i'm coming this at this as a non-fan where and i'm sure there's somebody out there who is a big green lantern fan and is talking about flash villains going like well there's a well, you got a cold guy and a mirror guy what, what can a mirror guy even do and i would be like let me let me explain to you the, the implications of being a mirror master <laughs> you can do it. so i i i Preemptively apologize to all the Green Lantern fans. You've got a guy with a mirror gun and a guy with a a flame gun and a guy with a cold gun (laughs) and a guy with an element gun and a guy with another kind of gun. It's all different guys. (laughs) Completely different. (laughs) Yeah. Deep bench. Um, Back to Legion. So he kind of begs the question, though, why doesn't every criminal, gang, pirate crew or space army in the DC universe invest heavily in yellow paint? And by that token, why doesn't why don't Green Lanterns carry around any other color of paint right? just in case <laughs> something happens to be yellow? Like because like Hal defeats Legion temporarily at least by covering him in mud, right? So that he's brown instead of yellow. Yeah, and like nobody else could think of this. Like <laughs> no, again, aliens. They've been doing this for like a thousand years or whatever. You know, however long the <laughs> since the dawn of time or, or you know, however long the. <laughs> and like, is it is it that Hal's like rookie perspective gives him the distance to think through this that nobody else has you know has that devil may care human ingenuity to go yeah what if we just made him a different color for for a little bit you know yeah I, well I think that's what you're supposed to think is that they're the the old Green Lanterns are hide bound and by the book and rigid and Hal has some kind of maverick american spirit like he's a test pilot so he'll try different things or whatever i i don't know it's i mean the yellow vulnerability has never made a lot of sense um 
anyone with even a passing familiarity with color theory, you know, like a toddler with a board book, knows that uh, green is a secondary color made by mixing blue with yellow. <laughs> so it make more sense if you, if a color is going to be your weakness, it'd make more sense for red to be the op- it's the opposite of green. Um, but I guess yellow means fear. So that's the real explanation. We got yeah. the, the fear, the fear bug <laughs> from the Jeff Johns origin. I'm, I'm sort of surprised that they didn't take the opportunity offered by crisis and having anything being in play, right? To either get rid of the yellow weakness or at least maybe try to explain it more rationally, like in the same way that in Man of Steel we see, like you know, very pseudoscience, right? But like pseudoscience explanations for, you know, there's a bioelectric aura and it almost seems like this was sort of crying out for somebody to just sort of go like, well, any light within these, you know, angstroms or whatever, however, however the visible light spectrum works, <laughs> yeah. get an encyclopedia and say like, oh yeah, between this, you know, wavelength and this wavelength, something happens, right? But there's not anything yeah. really. It's just like, it's yellow, so we, we can't touch it. And Hal Jordan really never asks why that would be. Any questions. <laughs> he any never questions. asks any questions. He has no curiosity. It's really frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> um, the origin of Legion kind of illustrates the high-handedness and casual cruelty of the Guardians, which is contrasted against Hal's maverick American bullheadedness yeah so the motivation is legion species originally was sort of this relentlessly expanding insectoid life form and what we learned from by the way a giant book on oa i don't know if that's part of the, the green lantern mythos but there's like a giant book that's okay yeah. i'm again i'm surprised that that was not given how explained <laughs> explained it's or, just even, there <laughs> even just like even just like how how very you know how self-serious a lot of the post-crisis stuff is that they wouldn't have gone with something a little less storybook and I'm, I'm not i'm not really even complaining about it i'm just like i'm just sort of surprised right that of all the stuff that got switched around like a giant book that has all the answers in the universe they didn't swap that up for you know a very rational computer or something but um yeah this book says that unchecked the legion species would have ravaged the galaxy and so the guardians trapped them on a single planet and under a green dome where they essentially starved and tore each other apart over limited resources. So it's like obviously this was a essentially arguably a form of negligent genocide if that's a if that's yep. a crime that gets prosecuted. But um yeah, but it's it's not really established what the other options could have been. Like what would a more humane alternative to that have been? Or if if this is like really some kind of fundamentally out of control insatiable galaxy conquering species of alien right or are they not really as hopeless you know irredeemable as all that and the guardians are just racist against insect life forms i don't know so like i'm not sure whether the point is that like the guardians make these cold draconian decisions and they need to be held accountable for that or is it just that there's no equitable solution sometimes and you have to make these hard decisions like i'm not sure we're supposed to be suspicious of the guardians but we're not supposed yeah. to hate the Guardians, I don't think. I mean, this is post-Watergate and, you know, disillusionment and the American psyche and everything. I think when the Guardians first appeared in the Silver Age, they were the wise, all-knowing, beneficent alien species. And gradually over the decades, that 
basic idea has been chipped away until they're well, it's kind of like what happened to professor x <laughs> sure yeah and the marvel universe is like everything positive about them has been removed and they're just like full supervillains um at this point yeah all, all your all your authority figures are are villains now right? yeah 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 so i think this was just trying to add some of that real politique or kind of hard decisions or like 4d chess like the guardians are operating on a on a level that that we mere humans can't understand but at the same time our value as humans or Hal's value as a human with a human viewpoint is supposed to contrast against that and he's supposed to be like you know the greatest green lantern because he goes against these kinds of cold-blooded decisions or whatever but um I, I think that's the intent. I don't think that is what necessarily gets pulled off either in these these six issues or, or any other Green Lantern comics. Like it's it's complicated too by the whole cosmic setup of the DCU because I mean they are the guardians of the universe, not just the galaxy. <laughs> so they've broken up the universe into three thousand six hundred sectors, and each of those sectors gets a single Green Lantern to patrol it. So given even the, the the limited knowledge of the size of the universe that they had in the 1950s or the 1980s, Hal has to, as a Green Lantern of Sector 2814, oversee justice in a couple of different galaxies. <laughs> <laughs> Just because space is pretty big. So... <laughs> Uh, the idea of this relentlessly, um, expanding aggressive insect species that has to be checked in a universe that is essentially infinite is just a weird idea. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think it, it holds up to any scrutiny and obviously it's not really meant to, but it's again, looking at this in well into the 21st century, (laughs) um, it, it reads very differently, I think, than it, the way it was intended back in, in 1989. Mm-hmm. Like you said, Legion has a very sympathetic backstory, um, even now, perhaps more so now. And given that our hero <laughs> is a narcissistic, aggressive jerk, you ca- I'm, I'm kind of sad that Legion didn't win. <laughs> well, yeah, because like, and, and, th- and that's another thing, too, is that you could you could see a way of writing this where you assume that the big yellow guy is the uncomplicated, unquestionable villain. And he says, actually, I have a point, and the Guardians had this really destructive solution to this. And then Hal Jordan would say, you know what? Maybe we can find it, find some sort of a compromise or even to actively rebel against the Guardians and find, you know, figure something else out. But it's just, in the end, he doesn't care that maybe Legion's people got like a bad deal. He's just like, you know what? You killed my friend, so I have to take you out. And, and 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 Legion says like fair enough, right? So yeah, like honesty and fearlessness, not empathy, not compassion, not understanding. <laughs> <laughs> honesty and fearlessness—that's what gets you the Green Lantern ring. So let's talk about the rest of the the supporting cast here. Um, we get a glimpse at Hal's family, who are regular characters in the Silver Age. We kind of only get really one of his brothers but he's he's actually the middle child he's got an older brother and a younger brother and we only get jack and in, in this this book and d who ends up being jack's wife um hmm. and then you know his his dad and everything and, and the implications from that um there's that 
the co-worker, um, the antagonistic co-worker, who's named Biff, a classic in 1950s kind of name. <laughs> Nowadays, I think that character would probably be like Hector Hammond or something. So you would like set up. Yeah, rivalry. An, an existing supervillain um, in this antagonistic role. And then they would go on to become that supervillain somehow. And then you get Carol Ferris and her father who are really given nothing to do. Yeah. Um, so Carol is in this book. She's a female character that I feel is sort of a bad trope where it's like this ex-girlfriend who puts the guy down to his face, you know, and says, oh, you need to you know, shape up. You're worthless. But then sticks up for him to other people. Like she defends Hal to her dad and says, mm-hmm. you know, he used to be your number one pilot and maybe you should give him another another chance or whatever. And like, it's not clear why, you know, like why she says one thing to him and something else to her dad. It just sort of comes off in practice, like, you know, women who can figure him out. Right. And that's not, that's not great. We don't want that. <laughs> no. And I mean, there's other bits, um, particularly in the police station that are, are outright misogyny. That's really difficult to read yeah. now. And, and I read that um, uncritically in 1989 as a, as a young male person. <laughs> so it's not the kind of thing I, I would share with my son these days mm-hmm. because I, I don't, care for that kind of attitude but i think that is of a piece you know it's like one of those things that does not age well but also really shouldn't have been appropriate then either yeah carol's character it seems like they're trying to make her more of a rounded character and not just be oh green lantern you're so great right and have her be a little antagonistic towards hal but also she does just pretty much go yeah, I think Hal's a good guy after all. He should get to fly planes again, even though he... I don't know. It just it just seems like everybody forgives Hal Jordan, not because he necessarily does anything. I mean, he does turn himself in, but also was he going to go, you know, on the lam for the rest of his life, like to avoid a 90-day jail sentence, you know? Right, I know. <laughs> well, it's so quickly glossed over at the end. I think it's over in a couple panels. His his yeah. his ninety days. So it's it doesn't feel like like it earns him anything. <laughs> yeah, he stays in jail for one panel transition, and then he's yeah, and then he's out. And then there's Andy, who's a a character we've never seen or heard of before. He's quickly fridged and largely forgotten, um, despite being Hal's quote unquote best friend. There are zero minority characters. Which is a, a glaring omission, particularly in a priest comic. Um, we don't even get an appearance from Hal's buddy Tom Kalmaku, the Eskimo mechanic with the extremely racist nickname. Um, we do get the requisite orange, purple, pink, and blue aliens, of course, and that always brings to mind that famous exchange in Hard Traveling Heroes. <laughs> um, but no African Americans, no Asian Americans, no. Everybody's very white and very bland. <laughs> I guess we should be happy that Andy isn't our minority representation, and then he's right. killed off or something. He's <laughs> just killed off. Yeah. Um. But then, like, there's this always with Green Lantern. There's this there's this odd balance between his Earth supporting cast and his alien supporting cast. So we get those. They get Tomar Ray, who is the Green Lantern of Sector Twenty Eight Thirteen, which is where Krypton used to be. We get Salak, the four armed, weird, cucumber headed, purple guy. And everybody's favorite alien, Kilowog, the big pig drill sergeant guy. Classic aliens from the Silver and Bronze Ages. 
and like I said, it's the nature of the Green Lantern core, it's hard to give either side of Hal's life equal weight, particularly because Earth is a lot less exciting than space. And we do get Sinestro clearly in the background in a couple of group shots, but he never gets any lines. He never interacts with Hal. It's really, he's just kind of, there's an Easter egg for the fans, I guess. We don't meet him, right? It's not like, hey, there's the Sinestro guy. You're going to deal with him later. No, you just see this magenta guy with a mustache uh, flying around in, in the background in a couple of panels. And yeah. I mean, he's not even, he's not called Sinestro. I mean, assuming he's a Sinestro because of what happens in the, the sequel Emerald Dawn 2. But it's another like thing that could have been set up and isn't <laughs> remotely. It's just another missed opportunity. It's just like, what were they thinking? in 1989 well they're thinking we're just gonna tell a slam bang adventure story i guess yeah i mean that's 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 what this that's what the story is right it's just it's a green lantern adventure and it's one that reintroduces i guess more like just showcases some general green lantern concepts so you, you get the ring you get the battery which avancer explains but hal ignores good old hal it's another element we get is the the core itself which polices the aforementioned 3,600 space sectors. It kind of implies that the Justice League is like a AAA team that Hal sometimes plays with when nothing important is going on in the universe. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that's how the Guardians perceive it, right? Like, you can you can waste time with your friends when your chores are done, but... <laughs> <laughs> and then, yeah, and then you got the Guardians yourselves. So like, like I said, they're originally, back in the day, they were these all-knowing, all-wise, all-good um, space aliens and and now they're kind of cruel and inhuman and unemotional Hal just sort of has to keep an eye on them yeah the Green Lantern are like a sort of a, pol- a space police force and it is like the, the the rogue cop and the the chief who doesn't see that he gets results right yeah and I you know if memory serves at the time that Emerald Dawn came out the status quo within the regular books was that the core had been disbanded and the guardians had gone off to another dimension with the Zamorans. So there, there was nothing for how to rebel against anymore. <laughs> so maybe they were just kind of included just to, because they're part of the setup rather than an integral part of what was actually going on in the, in the, in the monthly title. Mm-hmm. I will say that I honestly don't feel like a lot of these things were, really explained in Emerald Dawn, like the whole, like they were introduced, but I don't feel like they were really like, I understand how all this Green Lantern stuff works because I know it already. Right. Like even not being a big Green Lantern fan, I just know the setup and stuff. I would know it by osmosis, even if I hadn't read Green Lantern comics, but like, if this is supposed to be like, again, the re- re- the redefinition of the concept, it's post crisis. You got a blank slate here. It's not really clear what Green Lantern Corps are or what they do or how they operate. If you were coming into this totally fresh, just like, what is this Green Lantern guy? Um, and Hal asks almost no questions about what his new job is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He is like, he, he shows up and he's like, oh, we're doing this now? Basic training? Okay. There's one incident where he meets Tomar Ray and they stop some like weird alien grass. And so it's like, is this our is this our mandate? Like we have to fix weird natural disasters in space or is it, you know? (laughs) 
Yeah. Well, it's like you like you asked about the book. Is is this something new or is this an established part of the Green Lantern canon? It it is an established part, but they don't really Yeah, they don't spend any time explaining what it is. I guess I took it for granted. I guess because I know all this stuff, it just seems like okay, so we we hit this part now. So this part of the legend or the the continuity or the canon, here here's that panel where that appears. Abin Sur actually gives a decent description of the core and the responsibility of a lantern in the first issue. This is where my my problems with the coloring it, it, because his dialogue captions are change colors when they should all be green. For for yeah. gosh sake, he's a Green Lantern. Come on. <laughs> um, but while he's giving this lecture to Hal, Hal is freaking out about the situation he's in, and so he's not paying attention to it. But it's a it's a fairly it's a really good summation of of the Green Lantern core and, and its role within the universe. It, but I don't think Hal gets any of it. <laughs> um, and then the rest of the series just kind of throws Hal into the mix and he reacts. He's never proactive. He's just kind of reacts. Like he's handed off to Salak by Tomar Ray, and then Salak hands him off to to Kilowog and Kilowog puts him through his intensive boot camp training, which we're, we're not privy to how long that actually takes, but he's, he's missing from earth for quite some time. Mm-hmm. And then throughout this too, like there's all these green lanterns just on Oa, like what's going on in the rest of the universe <laughs> where people just can just chill out on Oa, not paying attention to anything. It's really, I don't know. It's really weird <laughs> when you start thinking about this stuff. So, <laughs> well, people complained about the series at the time and complained even more loudly in the mid-90s when Emerald Twilight happened. I think all the seeds for Emerald Twilight were planted right here. You get Hal's arrogance and his refusal to accept the Guardian's authority. You have the use of the central power battery to magic away the problem. And you have the coldness and calculating nature of the Guardians. So, like, Emerald Twilight was actually a... a surprisingly natural evolution of of this character of this version of Hal. yeah no i, I agree with that because my perception at the time again not being a big green lantern we did before kyle Rayner, you know stepping into the role is that it seemed to me like oh apparently what's happened here is that the hal's turn into parallax was very abrupt and possibly seen as a a betrayal of this beloved silver age character right but like reading this version like if i didn't know better I would almost wonder if it was like a long-term plan that, you know, in 1989 they were planning, oh yeah, like Hal, this Hal guy will go nuts in five years. He'll go mad with power. And we're, we're, we're planting the seeds here, but like, this is the long-term, you know, goal for that. And I know, I know that's not the case, obviously, but again, if I was, you know, if I was coming into it totally ignorant of anything with, to do with Green Lantern, this would be like, oh, I see you'd, you really set this up well in advance. That's that's excellent, yeah. <laughs> that's excellent arc planning. It's like an ac- yeah, an accident that, that turned out actually really well <laughs> to, for some people. Yeah, because the, the entire time reading this, I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, I see how, I mean, even to the, the point of he goes into the battery and nobody's quite sure how he can, you know, absorb all that power and not just burn himself out, which he eventually sort of does when he becomes Parallax. So yeah, it's really interesting to set up a Chekhov's gun in that way without yeah. really meaning to. Anything else you want to discuss? Yeah, I want to just mention uh, M.D. Bright's art. First of all, the, the Green Lantern suit, 
is that's one of my favorite costumes in comics. But it's a costume that I feel like a lot of artists, it's sort of like Spider-Man, where there are some people who just fundamentally can't draw a Spider-Man that looks right. It just sort of looks funky. And I think that sort of happens with Green Lantern, too, where there's enough variation, enough little fiddly bits and angles that some people draw Green Lantern and it doesn't quite look right. Uh, Doc Bright just draws a tremendous Hal Jordan. I, I just like like looking at the art, you know? Yeah. But one thing I want to mention with him is that back in our episode on X-Men number one, we talked about how around this time, the late 80s, early 90s, the, the flashy cool artists were just starting to clean up at Marvel. And guys like Bright, who actually did used to work at Marvel, and he did uh, Spider-Man versus Wolverine with Priest a couple of years before, he's not a flashy cool artist. Right. And so guys like him stopped getting the high profile assignments at Marvel and they moved to DC. Um, and that doesn't mean that these artists aren't good because Bright is great, you know, just really clean, uh, clear classical story, uh, superhero storytelling and anatomy. But he doesn't have a style that really jumps out at you and makes you go, you know, like McFarlane, right? Like nobody else draws like this. Right. And you'll find a lot of artists like this at DC at the time where almost sort of an unofficial house style, I think, of. Everything looks everything looks right, you know. <laughs> yeah, I I'm I'm actually a big fan of of Bright. I think I first saw him on probably Power Man and Iron Fist when Owsley was writing it. So I, Doc and Priest have a, a long history <laughs> together. They've done a lot of projects together. I think most famously Quantum and Woody. But you're right. He's not a flashy artist. He's but he's a great storyteller. Um, and you know where you are. And what is happening uh, on every page. Big fan. I don't think he gets enough work. <laughs> in all honesty. <laughs> um, so Emerald Dawn didn't have much of a lasting legacy in the Iron Age. So it, it unintentionally sets up the parameters under which Emerald Twilight came to fruition. And because of Emerald Twilight, Green Lantern, through at least half the Iron Age and beyond, it was simply not Hal Jordan, but rather some snot-nosed, crab-faced kid. Whoa. That's, <laughs> that is a highly insulting way to describe my boy, <laughs> Kyle Rayner. <laughs> are we going are we, are we to fight about Kyle Rayner? No. I'm, I'm actually I'm a much bigger fan of Kyle than I am of Hal, but Crabface is the nickname the priest came up with for him so what's what that what's that priest i didn't know that yeah oh, so yeah because I, I, yeah, I, I, I had heard crab mask but i yep oh. so almost every part of the green lantern mythos would be temporarily chucked out the window leaving behind just the core idea of a guy with a magic ring that can do anything he can imagine which is essentially the golden age version of green lantern uh, actually when you think about it <laughs> um so emerald dawn thus has a very little lasting legacy like as i said before legion never appears again hal's status quo during the monthly series uh that follows this or was or was going on concurrently was very different from this setup and also the implication within emerald dawn is that it takes place even before superman debuts so roughly 10 years before the then present dcu Mm-hmm. The circumstances for Hal and the, and the Green Lantern Corps were thus very different, as I alluded to earlier. When you had asked if I wanted to read about this guy every month earlier, yeah. um, if what I wanted to see was like the self-pitying screw-up from Emerald Dawn evolve into a better person over time, that's not what I would really get from the Green Lantern ongoing series, is it? Because it would be 10 years later. 
Yeah, exactly. And um, it's very much, like I said, the, the core had been disbanded. Uh, I think Oa had blown up. And like they, they restarted Green Lantern with Hal kind of wandering, like doing redoing the hard traveling heroes bit, but on his own. You know, he runs into John and Guy and the old timer from Hard Traveling Heroes, actually, the the um, guardian who was crossing America with uh, Hal and, and Ollie, uh, went, you know, comic book insane. And so mm-hmm. he was the, the big bad and uh, Hal and, and John and, and Guy had to defeat him. And in so doing, brought the attention of the guardians and the Zamorans back and they returned and decided to found a new core and uh john was given the job of running oa which became this mosaic world which started a whole spin-off book of mosaic which we probably won't cover because of that person who wrote it um oh was that okay yeah yeah that was his brainchild those issues were not great i was reading them because i liked again i liked the concept of green lantern's power set and the the, the idea of the cosmic adventures but there was like a leaning very heavily on the silver age stuff for some things and then also like Hal couldn't keep a steady job he wasn't a test pilot he was doing all sorts of other stuff very scattershot um and i think that was in part why they decided to deep six the whole thing and start over with kyle so but we'll we'll get into that at some later date and i think we'll enjoy that a lot more actually (laughs) um so, but I guess we'll we'll tease the fact there was a direct sequel for Emerald Dawn, and that sequel, in the style of the time, was called Emerald Dawn Two, uh, which delved deeper into the Hal Sinestro relationship, and I think was more creatively rewarding than the first Emerald Dawn. So Giffen returned to plot and do layouts and that other person scripting. And I think that series perhaps has a greater impact on the modern incarnations of both Hal and Sinestro because it's very much about not really a friendship at the time, but very much about them having at least a prior relationship before Sinestro went evil. So there's actually some depth to that whole arch enemy dynamic, which has been strengthened in the post or through the John's origin and and the post John's era. Um, I, th- I think that's an, an interesting dynamic between Sinestro and Hal that you don't necessarily get in a lot of superheroes. You you kind of get it with Thor and Loki, particularly in the films, uh, less so as Loki evolved into more of a heroic character. But this kind of Sinestro doesn't love Hal like a brother, but he respects him. And so... There's a cool interplay between them whenever they, they go at each other's throats because they either have, Sinestro sees Hal as, as basically being the only person worth dealing with. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, like, when, when he has to deal with Guy or John or Kyle, he's um, dismissive. And I think that's a big part of why Sinestro may, is such a good foil. And, and why he's the go-to villain. <laughs> he's, he's the Lex Luthor. He's the Joker because of that, that kind of relationship. Yeah, sort of a, the sort of ment- the mentor, student, colleague kind of thing. I, 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 I get that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I never read that one either, but um, that's about how that's actually his 90 days in prison. Yeah. And he lets himself out to train with Sinestro sort of 
with the power of the ring. Yeah. That already sounds like a more interesting origin story. Like you maybe should have started there instead yeah. of <laughs> this like kind of instead of this yeah, the big yellow guy is yeah. on the loose. But it's also like at two that puts a lie to the end of the series where Hal proves himself by doing his ninety days. Well, he doesn't. <laughs> he's sneaking out <laughs> to go do Green Lantern stuff with Sinestro the whole time. So he's really he's not learning any important lessons <laughs> about oh. responsibility and stuff. So yeah complicated legacy these two books have <laughs> what a cad yeah <laughs> oh golly uh so ultimately what did you think of emerald dawn it's fine <laughs> right <laughs> i would you know i i don't want to be too because again i i know it can it can seem sometimes if things that i read when i was eight or 16 or whenever you know you'd give them give them a pass and then when you come to these things fresh you're maybe a little more critical so i want to be i want to be aware of that but you know that first issue was really great <laughs> again um but yeah there's i mean there's very various reasons that dc doesn't push this series anymore whether it's uh for behind the scenes personnel reasons or because there are subsequent versions of hal's origin that have supplanted this one but even on its own terms this is probably the least essential post-crisis revamp for a, a major character, I, th- I think, just from what I've read. Um, Man of Steel was supposedly, like, necessary, right? Like, the, Superman needs to be redefined for a new generation. Batman Year One is a radically scaled-back version of the character. Paris' Wonder Woman is a very sweeping reinvention, trying to find a new relevance for that character. This sort of seems like you said, it's just time to do Green Lantern, right? <laughs> like, you know, like... Like, does, does anybody have any really exciting ideas for Green Lantern? Like, y'all <laughs> sort of like where Green Lantern is going? You just want to do... It's just a new version of the origin, right? Instead of a fundamental... Let's really think about what this character means or what they, this mythos or whatever should mean or what we can do with it and just... We'll do the new version, right? We'll introduce all the characters and they'll be consistent with how they are later. Yeah. It is possible, of course, that they're could have been an all priest version where issues two through six are totally different and really innovative. And it would have been as groundbreaking as, as the others, but we can't assume that. Right. So who knows? Yeah. Um, release the priest cut. I want to start getting that, that hashtag trending. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. That, that'd be so much more awesome. I can, I can already tell you without even knowing the details, it would have been better. Um, I guess yeah, I have been very critical of this, perhaps unfairly so. I'm very much looking at this from 2023, and for sure, in 1989, there was much less pressure to create a compelling, enjoyable superhero comic book, right. um, even those heady post-Watchmen days. This was a time when, when DC was still pitching at an all-ages audience, so it had to run the gamut from kids to adults. This probably passes the test of being something to engage the 18- to 16-year-old demographic. There's lots of action. There are high-swinging teenage emotions. There are cruel parental unit stand-ins for the hero to rebel against and show he's better than. Um, But I think I wanted to see more develop from the premises laid out in that first issue. Like you. you. How being a, a Green Lantern affected Hal's interpersonal relationships on Earth how he might have been matured and tested as a hero, how he could go from being this 
perennial screw-up to being the greatest Green Lantern ever, and I don't think we quite got that. (laughs) I think ultimately it's it's a fine origin, damning with faint praise, but I I just wish there was more to it. That's it, I guess. (laughs) That Emerald Dawn. Hashtag release the priest cut. Yeah, absolutely. He's working at DC. We could get this. I'm sure this is nobody's priority, but (laughs) (laughs) if... uh, if enough of you, if enough of you want it, they probably won't do it anyway. Yeah, exactly. Anyway. <laughs> like, yeah, he proved that they won't necessarily do what how Jordan fans want you to do anyway. <laughs> so, with that wrapped up, I'm gonna do a little experiment. Um, Jim, mm-hmm. gauge your reaction. Okay. I'm gonna say one word. Okay. Wizard. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. That's I, I'm 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 picking up a, a vibe, if you will. <laughs> Uh, so I'm going to ask you out there in Radio Land, did that fill you with a fond, almost glowing sense of nostalgia? Or did you wince like I showed you an embarrassing photo of yourself from high school? Definite wince. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> an audible wince, in fact. Yeah. Uh, either or both reaction might be appropriate or justified. Uh, instead of a comic book, we're going to be taking a look at a magazine about comic books and what it can tell us about the Iron Age and just sort of re-examining a, what is today and even at the time was a very controversial uh, publication. Until then, you can reach out to us at ironagecomicspodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at ironageofcomics. We'll be releasing episodes the first and third Wednesdays of the month, but you can subscribe or follow the Iron Age of Comics on your podcasting app of choice, and we will come right to you. Please consider rating and reviewing on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a five-star review, and we will read it out on air. Uh, we've said it before, but this is a new and independent podcast, so all of the stuff that you know, even the very popular podcasts will, and the ones that have a huge following, will say rate and review. Well, like this moves the needle for us comparatively more. So if you if you rate and review one podcast, <laughs> your, please make it this one. Your day. Please make it this one, and we'll read it out on the air. So that's our. It's a it's a it's a slight bribe of minor cachet, but perhaps more importantly than gaming algorithms like we're trying to do here, please consider sharing our show with the comics reading people in your life. Um, if there are Green Lantern fans, I will take all the mail that complains about how I don't respect Green Lantern's very deep bench of rogues and how the, the and how the Flash villains that I love are all. Lame guys with different types of guns. I will. I will take all those emails. I will respond. But any kind of engagement is good. So, uh, yeah. So again, thanks for listening. And for the Iron Age of Comics, I have been Justin Zydok. I have been Jim Gannon. And have a good night. See ya. <laughs> <laughs>